Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Well, thank you so much. Merry Christmas and happy holidays, everyone. Uh, Before I get into intros, I I just wanted to thank Catherine and the events team for being such a help in putting these events on. It's it's not easy to juggle seven different schedules and make sure people are looking good, sounding good, and are organized well. So kudos to Catherine, the events team. Thank you so much. And as Catherine said, my name is Tim Desher. And um, in part one of this series, we spoke about what happened in the 2020 elections. And because of this, what are the likely results um, in terms of labor policy in 2021? Uh, In part two today, we are going to focus on policy implications for long-term labor reform, both the positives and the negatives. Um, This event is going to purposely be run a little bit more informal as if it would be a roundtable discussion, hopefully driven by conversation. So that means we want to hear from you. Uh, Please, as Catherine said, if you have a question, don't be shy. Put it in the questions tab and we're going to be do our best to get to it. Um, I'm just going to read very short bios today. as we're such uh, have such a limited time frame, so I'm going to go ahead and invite all the participants, if you could, to share your screen uh, with us. And uh, I'm going to start off first with uh, my friend Vinny Vernuccio. Vinny is the president of the Amer- uh, the Institute for the American Worker. Uh, he's been covering lab- labor policy issues for a decade, you know, focusing on the big states: New York, Michigan, traditional union strongholds. Uh, uh, he's a fellow uh, with the Mackinac Institute, and he's also affiliated with the State Policy Network. So welcome, Vinny. Next up, Mike Saltzman. He's the Managing Director of the Employment Policies Institute, and he's also a partner at Berman & Company. He is really on the cutting edge of pushing back against the left's assault on worker freedom. He's helped lead the pushback against the Fight for 15 protecting the gig economy, and several other attempts by the left to limit worker freedom. We really do look to you, Mike, so thank you so much for being here. And and on a personal note, he grew up in the heart of Metro Detroit, three miles away from the massive GM Orion assembly plant, which many of his neighbors worked at and were also UAW members. And I know this because we grew up in the very same neighborhood, just a couple streets away from each other. We went to the same high school. I looked up to you then. I look up to you now. Mike, thank you so much for being here today. And finally, last but not least, Rachel Gressler. We save the best for last. Rachel is a research fellow here at the Heritage Foundation focusing on labor and retirement policy issues. Look, if there's an issue having to do with these topics, she's written and commentated on them all and done it with incredible um, ability. She's a tremendous asset to Heritage, but most importantly, she's a mom of six, six, and still runs sub eight minute marathon miles. It's amazing. Rachel, thank you for being here today. Thank you for helping organize this. And I'm going to stick with you if that's okay. Just set the stage for us. It's important to know where we came from in order to know where we're going. So just if you could just give a brief history 
and uh, just a little bit of the evolution of unions in America, I think that that'd be a great place to start. Sure. Thanks, Tim. So the labor market in the U.S. looks a lot different today than it did, you know, back in 1950 when nearly 35 percent of all workers were unionized. Um, fast forward to today and only about 10 percent of workers belong to a union. And if you look just at the private sector side, it's only about six percent. We see even bigger gaps across the states, those right to work states, North Carolina, South Carolina, 2 percent of workers. Um, there are some heavily unionized states like New York and Hawaii, where it's over 20 percent. Um, and those are where, you know, it's the forced union state and those workers don't have a choice. But I think that a lot of the decline of labor unions is just a natural fact of many of the things that those unions used to provide for workers are now provided through the law. Um, and also just the fact that the globally competitive economy has, you know, weakened the unions and empowered workers because it's given them that broader outlet to compete. So, you know, you're talking about Detroit. Um, and back when the only cars that Americans could buy were those that were made by the UAW workers, the union had the power to impose those above market compensation packages um, without any threat of competition. Of course, that meant higher prices, so fewer people could afford the cars, and if fewer people buy cars, then fewer workers are needed to produce those jobs, so there are fewer um, jobs available. And, you know, I think that we've seen the UAW is one of those examples, kind of the decline in the auto industry in the U.S. because they have remained unionized and the union in particular has remained insistent on its original role instead of shifting to more of what workers want, which might be more flexibility or pay for productivity. Um, so production today is half of what it used to be for the U.S. auto market. And I think that we just need to look at what unions were what they are now and maybe what they could be instead because we really don't live in this industrial area um, labor market where people clock in at 9 a.m clock out at 5 p.m and they all produce 20 widgets you know people are more educated transient and so we need to see what would work better for today's labor market I, I think it's a fair assumption to say that people are in a much different position as they were back then. Um, so things will naturally change. And Mike, I wanted to, to shift to you because one of the, the main issues that we continue to hear about if we're in um, labor policy circles um, threatens to change with the changing situation for workers, and that's sectoral bargaining. And, and we see that um, given certain voices on the left, this could potentially be coming. So first things first, I, I hope you can explain to us a little bit what that is and maybe how this would differ from historic uh, union representation. Sure. Thanks, Tim. And thanks for the kind introduction earlier. Um, in the United States, typically the, the union system, we have what's called an, an, an enterprise bargaining system, which generally means uh, negotiations are happening on the company level. And uh, unions, when faced with the kind of trends that Rachel just described with declining membership, uh, they've sought in recent years uh, sort of certain strategies to improve their performance under the status quo. And so there was a there's a piece of legislation called the Employee Free Choice Act some years back. And then more recently, we have the PRO Act. These are all designed to enhance their ability to organize more workers under the current system. Uh, but what a number of politicians and uh, think tanks now and some influential unions like the SEIU have proposed is this new model that's called sectoral bargaining. Uh, now, un under a sectoral system, you have a set of standards that are set for an entire industry that have the, the legal and binding power of law uh, the SEIU in particular has 
spoken favorably about this idea because in hard to organize industries for them, uh, like the restaurant industry, they, they would prefer to sit down at a table with a couple of other large companies and, and negotiate a set of standards that apply to every company in the country, whether or not they're part of a union. Now, uh, the sectoral system is, is common, uh, not common in the United States. Uh, it's, it's very common in Europe. Uh, but I, I, I'd suggest to people that I think we're, we're getting a little bit of a bait and switch here. I mean, what we've been offered is this idea that we're, we're going to have this kind of enlightened European labor relations system here. But what we're actually getting is something more like what they have today in New York with the wage board system, where you have a, a very highly politicized system where um, politically connected insiders, labor unions are able to use this wage board system to uh, set standards and policies that employers have very little way to, to challenge and that many employees don't like either. Uh, you know, I, we can come back to this later, but I, I think the, the one note I'd make that I think is important is that uh, the, the German system is actually, uh, while it's sort of held up hypothetically as something that we would be bringing to the United States with sectoral bargaining, most unions in the U.S. wouldn't like the German system. I mean, in the German system, uh, entire textbooks have been written on this, but really um, you have these sectoral agreements that are made between employers, associations, and unions that employers are able to opt out of. Uh, employers don't have to be part of those agreements. Uh, what unions want to have here in the U.S., and again, we can talk about this more about how it works in New York, is a mandatory thing that employers cannot opt out of. Right. And Mike, talk just a little bit more about the effect that has on employers in general. I want to I, I want to nail down nail this down because it's such an important issue here. So talk a little bit about the effect that that would have on the employer specifically. Sure. Well, you know, uh, we can, I can give you a very specific example uh, of how this would work. So uh, in New York, when the fight for 15 started ramping up and, and labor groups were looking for a, a statewide win on a $15 minimum wage, uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo took to the pages of the New York Times and he said, I'm going to create a $15 minimum wage in New York and I'm going to do it by creating a wage board. Now, hypothetically, these boards are supposed to be independent and we're not really supposed to know the outcome of the board until until after they've taken testimony. In this case, Cuomo knew at the very beginning what the outcome of the board would be. And so uh, what happened was, is there was a board that was appointed. There were a series of hearings held where unions packed the room. Uh, I was at the first hearing in Buffalo. They shouted down any speakers who tried to talk about what a bad idea it was. And then at the end, the board came back with a series of recommendations that created a $15 minimum wage for specific industries, in that case, the fast food industry in New York. Uh, if there's anybody uh, who's listening today who's uh, part of the gig economy, they, they, may, uh, they may be familiar with this from New York City, where the Taxi and Limousine Commission uh, used its power to set uh, wage regulations and also caps on four hire drivers for New York City. So these boards are very powerful. It's very difficult to challenge what they do legally. Uh, and the, the, um, the, the difficulty is, it is if you are an employer, uh, especially in one of these blue states, you're naturally at a disadvantage because you have a company to run, whereas your opponents are, are, are focused on organizing and they can be the ones that pack these hearings. They can be the ones that ultimately influence what the recommendations are. And if I can jump in here as somebody who grew up in rural New York State and had my first job at a pizza hut where I made five fifteen per hour, which was the minimum wage, New York, you know, this is one size fits all policies that get imposed on large portions. We're talking about whole states or sectoral bargaining, the entire U.S. 
it just don't work well. You know, we're on the pathway to $15 per hour where I grew up in Western New York State, and it's gonna crush the economy there. I mean, these are mom and pop small restaurants that cannot afford to raise their prices. People will stop going there. Um, and so $15 per hour there is not the same as New York City. Thank you for that, Rachel. It's a great example. Um, Vinny, I wanted to shift to you. Um, you know, we saw President Trump forge a connection with union um, workers and members, unlike many in, in, you know, for Republicans in recent history. And there are some fairly uh, prominent voices on the right who are calling that we almost double down on this outreach to unions uh, by, by using federal mandates, things like that. Can you just talk a little bit what that looks like and what it would be? Is there a potential um, um, bond or um, partnership forging there with the with people on the left and the right? How, what does that look like right now? Yeah, absolutely. And Tim, hey, thanks for having me on. And once again, thanks to Heritage for uh, co-hosting with I4AW. Uh, really excited to do this series with you guys. So thank you. Um, yeah, uh, you know, unfortunately, what we're hearing and, you know, it, it is letters from some proponents that propose to be conservatives, but they are doing this more one size fits all collective bargaining, this kind of old style unionism that Mike was talking about, you know, exploring sectoral bargaining or having wage boards allowing unions to uh, create wages and benefits all across entire industries. I mean, you know, the best example of this is just think of the South, uh, the Southern auto workers, since we were just talking about that, where you have, um, you know, VW, you have workers in Alabama, Mississippi that have consistently said, yeah, UAW, you know what? Uh, we don't want you representing us. And now with the recent corruption scandals, uh, it sounds like that was probably the right call. But if you have sectoral bargaining now, UAW is the union of record for auto workers. And if they get sectoral bargaining, guess what? They're the ones, because they've organized the big three, that's going to be setting wages and benefits for those Southern auto workers that have consistently said, no, we don't want you down here. Um, so you know, it's definitely something that you know, is very concerning when it comes to sectoral bargaining and uh, we want to pay attention to. But uh, Rachel, I know you were talking about you know, your upbringing in upstate New York, but if uh, the audience doesn't know, you actually have three panelists on here that have very strong ties to Michigan. Two grew up in Michigan. I'm, of course, a senior fellow at the Mackinac Center. I came up with some of the concepts I'm going to talk about uh, at the Mackinac Center and published uh, the 21st Century Unionism Study. So I want to shift over to Michigan. And um, in Michigan, there is a journalist, his name is Jack Lessenberry, and he was on the Michigan affiliate of MTR. So you can imagine this is not exactly a bastion of right-wing conservatism here. Um, and this was a couple of years ago. He was talking about the future of unions, much like we're doing today. And uh, he had a great line that uh, I've stolen and I'm going to give him credit for it, but it, it just perfectly encapsulates what we're talking about. It's that unions have figured out how to organize in the 1930s. And if the 1930s ever comes back, unions are going to be in a fantastic position. But the 1930s are not coming back. And, you know, that's what we're talking about here today, that unions have this one size fits all collective bargaining agreement style. They have mandates. They have compulsion. And essentially, I like to look at that. They're like crutches for the unions. They're holding them up, but they're also holding them back. And what the 21st century unionism study and what we'll, uh, I'd love to get into more details as we're talking advocates is giving up those government granted crutches and saying, stop the compulsion, stop forcing employers to work with you, stop forcing employees 
to accept your representation, become professional service organizations that employers want to deal with, that employees want to join, and that's how you can thrive. But it's not until they give up the compulsion, give up the one-size-fits-all style of collective bargaining, that they can really come back and thrive. Um, but I don't know if they're going to do that anytime soon. And unfortunately, what we're seeing with things like the PRO Act, like sectoral bargaining that we're talking about today, they're actually, unfortunately, doubling down on the old failed ways of the past. Thanks, Vinny. And before we get to Prop 22 in California, as, as uh, Mike mentioned, I just wanted to remind the uh, the audience, please feel free to drop your questions on the question tab. Um, we are uh, monitoring them, looking at them, so I appreciate uh, you taking part. So Prop 22 in California, it was a ballot measure, 2020, and it was um, in response to Assembly Bill 5, AB 5. And this would basically strip gig workers, Uber, Lyft drivers of their independent contractor status and categorize them as employees of the companies. And this would pretty much kill the gig economy, if, if I understand it correctly. Prop 22 was pushed um, by Uber and Lyft and other, basically Uber and Lyft, pushing back against AB 5. They spent Million, I mean, over a hundred million dollars to pass this, and, and really anyone can jump in here. But maybe Rachel, you can start. Are, are we happy with the result of Prop 22? Did or do you think it missed the mark? It's definitely going in the right direction because Prop 22 at least allowed Uber and Lyft to continue operating to let those drivers be independent to choose when and where and how often they work, etc. But it's important to note that when we think of Prop 22 and the law that was behind it, AB5 is being the gig economy, that's really only a small portion of who it was targeting. It's really all independent workers. That's you know contractors, temp workers, anybody who wants to be their own boss is covered under that act. And it's essentially limiting your freedom, taking away your livelihood in many cases for those workers. And you know, as Vinny said, the unions were great for 1930, you know, 2020, we're seeing this big uptick in the number of people who want to be independent. And I think COVID-19 is gonna bring on even more as people have experienced, you know, working from home, maybe doing some contract here and there to patch jobs together. And so it's really just shifting away, but the, the Prop 22 is a partial solution, but we really need this to apply across the board, not just to the gig companies. And we also don't want to get into this, you know, trading options here and saying, well, if you will provide these types of benefits under these circumstances, then we'll let you keep your um, platform available, but only if, you know, you apply about the government regulations that we impose. So there's still a ways. Well, you know, Tim, I, I think I think Prop 22 is interesting because it suggests a a different, I mean, it, it not only did it preserve the independent contractor status, it created um, some level of wage guarantee and benefits for gig workers, which is what the, cons uh, the, the concern that had been raised uh, about folks who work on on-demand platforms. And it's interesting to me because I think uh, sectoral bargaining is, is in a sense, it's, it's sort of like, it's, it's like going to the doctor to like with a cut on your finger and the doctor, well, we could you know, well, one way to take care of the cut is, well, we could just cut your hand off. And that's, that's sort of like the sectoral bargaining approach where they say, we'll just, we'll, we'll upend everything to solve this problem. And Prop 22 is sort of the more targeted approach where it says, what we're trying to do and what I think sectoral bargaining proponents are trying to do, at least as it relates to the gig economy, is say, we have these workers and we'd like to find a way to give them certain uh, guarantees in terms of, let's say, wages, benefits, um, some sort of equivalent of unemployment insurance. 
And they view sectoral bargaining as a way to try and get that to, to folks, to, to have some representation. Prop 22 is, I think, a, a different approach. Prop 22 says, well, no, um, these workers appreciate their independence. One, they don't want to be employees. Two, they, they may and probably don't want to be represented by a union, but they would like maybe some of these other things in the meantime. And so um, it may not be the right solution for every state, for every market, for every industry, but it's it's the right direction to go as opposed to saying, let's just rip up the National Labor Relations Act and entirely rethink how we approach collective bargaining in the United States. And I think, you know, more. Yeah. Like and the interesting about- thing. Yeah. The interesting Go thing ahead. about, you know, AB5 with, you know, Prop 22 is heavily targeted on the gig economy. But actually, the bill sponsor of Prop 5 or of AB5 actually said, no, 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 we, we, this maybe went too far. Oops, I made a mistake. And even before the voters approved Prop 22 on the ballot, California actually passed through the legislature a whole host of exemptions to AB5. Now, the problem there is, okay, you know, they're starting to remedy it. I mean, they should have just abolished AB5, period, or never passed it in the first place. But now we're seeing things like the PRO Act, and we're seeing things at the federal level that are still exactly the same as AB5, but without the exemptions. So we're seeing these attacks on the gig economy and independent contracting that even California has said has gone too far, yet federally they're basically trying to Californize the entire state when even California lawmakers have said, you know, this probably wasn't such a good idea. Somebody, somebody put this in context for me. If, if AB5 um, um, stayed, what would be the economic impact to that? Would there be, do we have numbers on job losses, on wage losses, things like that? One of the most powerful things that came out of AB5 were the, uh, I mean, there, there, there have been a number of reports that have come out, but the anecdotes behind it were so voluminous there's a there's a freelancer out there named Karen Anderson who started a Facebook group called Freelancers Against AB5, uh, and I've I've come to know Karen pretty well, and she her group uh, grew exponentially. She's got I think over 15,000 members now, and they've got this roll up of countless stories um, across all industries, from interpreters to um, uh, you know choral singers, Christmas carolers. Uh, there was even an op-ed in USA Today recently about uh, how California helped kill these Santa Clauses. Um, so I think part of what made the AB5 um, debate so powerful and also so difficult for the unions to respond to is that the um, the victims of it um, had the thing that the unions usually have, which is sort of the compelling pull at your heartstring stories. In California, you had a small group of connected legislators who were trying to take away uh, the livelihood of hundreds of thousands of Californians covering 300 plus categories of occupations. Yeah, yeah and on I4AW, um, we have uh, we actually have compiled stories um, of businesses that have been destroyed, entrepreneurs, uh, parents that you know were doing side gigs uh, because you know they wanted to homeschool their children. And um, all of that was destroyed by AB5. And I, I mean, I've talked with a lot of these folks and it is just absolutely heartbreaking. So I know we're going to probably share that in the chat, um, some of those stories. But yeah, I mean, it, it affects real people. And this is kind of the left and the union's way forward is, no, we want one size fits all. We want everyone to be employees. And uh, now with sectoral bargaining, we want wage and benefit boards so we can 
negotiate for everybody and not allow entrepreneurship, not allow individual uh, individuality, and not allow people to make a living as they see fit. Gressler, what were you going to say? Yeah, two key things here about who we're impacting. Um, a lot of this is an issue about what workers want, and a lot of workers want more flexibility. And this, um, you know, is particularly dear to me as a mother of six kids, because that structure just doesn't work. And you're taking away that option, something that they want to pursue. This woman, Monica, out in California, finally got her foot in a door somewhere and was able to start her own flower company. And yet under AB5, she almost had to shut her doors down. She had cancer. She wasn't allowed to hire her friends to come and work for her because she would have had to treat them as formal employees. And so, you know, at least when it's in California, those people can move to other states. But if you talk about implementing this on a national level, you're just taking away these new opportunities that are out there for people that never were before. It used to be that the only way you could be your own boss is if you were a doctor or a lawyer or a consultant, somebody that had a high level of education and a high income. Today, somebody with a high school diploma is equally likely to be an independent worker as somebody with a master's or a PhD you know, baby boomers, 29% of them did independent work in 2019. So this is not just one group of people. This is widespread and it lets them meet what they need to work. You know, people with disabilities who are marginalized have health conditions. 46% of the people who freelance last year said that they did it because they were not able to work for a traditional employer. That means that you take this option away and they don't have an income. So then they turn to disability insurance benefits, other welfare supports, family members. Um, it's really just about taking away opportunities from people, which is the sad part. Rachel, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with you, Rachel. Here, uh, uh, we got a question from Russ. He says, "Can our economist on the call, Rachel, tell us what percentage is $15 per hour of the national median hourly average?" Ooh, that's a good question. I think. <laughs> you no, know, I'm so really much glad about- I got pitched to Rachel. By the way. Um, You know, it varies significantly. That's probably getting up to, you know, 30th, 40th percentile. Heritage had a report a couple years back estimating that a $15 minimum wage would kill 7 million jobs in the U.S. Um, But of course, you know, states like Mississippi, Alabama are going to be much harder hit than California, New York City. So it's getting pretty high up there. And of course, you think of places like Puerto Rico, where that would be above the median wage, um, and you just push everybody into the underground economy or again onto welfare benefits. I'm I'm reading here. We have another comment uh, from John. He says UAW equals United Against Workers, and I want to play off of that just a little bit. Um, you know, given the tone and the tenor of this discussion, Vinny, um, people might think we're, you know, we might be anti-union, but in your recent piece um, in Real Clear Markets, uh, you talk about how unions can build on the many things that they already do, but only by giving up the monopoly they have on bargaining for all employees and the force they can exert on employers to bargain with them. Just just play a little bit, riff a little bit on that, on this you know, United Against Workers uh, tone and tenor. <laughs> Well, thank you, John. Uh, and, and I mean, that, that's kind of like the perfect juxtaposition here because, yeah. you know, we have what the unions are pushing. It's the sectoral bargaining. It's one size fits all. It's taking entrepreneurs and saying, no, 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 you're actually an employee and now we can organize you and we want to give you this one size fits all contract. Um, that's the 1930s. That's the industrial revolution union model that is not working while we're seeing union membership failing. They got to give up the government granted 
crutches and they got to embrace volunteerism and the individual. And, you know, then honestly, I think they can thrive. And, you know, frankly, I think they can do a lot of good that way. Uh, but once again, it's not by compelling either employers or employees to work with them. It's providing a service that people want to pay for. And um, in the 21st century uh, unionism study that I published under Mackinac and uh, highlighted there on the Real Clear article, go through four different ways that you know, they can embrace this. You know, the first is by, and all of these center around being voluntary. No government mandates, no one size fits all, have competition, have multiple options. You know, the first is voluntary certification. Kind of like, I, I don't know about anybody else on the call, but if you go to a mechanic, you look for that ACE, the Automotive Service Excellence Certificate on the wall. Okay, so this mechanic, they've done a certain amount of hours, they have certain qualifications, there's somebody vouching for them. It's not mandatory, but it's up there. It's like the good housekeeping seal of approval. So I know if I go into a mechanic and I say, like, okay, they know what they're doing. You know, that's one way that unions can essentially say, hey, our people are the best. They know what they're doing. They're qualified. Use them if you want them, but know that you're getting quality. So that's one option. You know, the second is as professional, voluntary, once again, voluntary professional associations. You have um, the voluntary teacher associations, which are the answer to the one-size-fits-all teachers unions, um, like the Association of American Educators that provides things that I'm also going to get into, like insurance and camaraderie and benefits. You have uh, organizations like the American Bar Association. And um, once again, they're all voluntary, but they're providing service and they're providing things that their members actually value, but they're not forcing it on anyone. Um, currently, some unions, and I'm thinking of sports unions, entertainment unions, they provide individual representation. So they have, you know, just, just think of the Actors Guild or the uh, or a ball players, basketball or baseball players associations. They have their floor contracts, but then all-star players or movie stars, they make a lot more because they get rewarded for their merit. Most union contracts have what's known as a seniority. So the only way you get ahead is by logging another year on the job. Doesn't matter how productive you are. Doesn't matter how good you are. Just log another year on job, and that's how you make more money. These unions have actually gotten away from that, and the more you earn, the better you are, the more you get rewarded. And then the last one, which is something that you know I know was mandated with Prop 22, but um, I think unions and other groups can provide different types of insurance, whether it's health insurance, um, unemployment insurance, um, malpractice insurance, things like that, but do it on a voluntary basis where there's competition and get members that way. And those are ways that they can actually provide services without having one size fits all, without forcing themselves and others. And that's how I think like conservatives can actually embrace some things and see common ground with unions if they give up those government granted training wheels. Yeah. We have a question from Kevin. I'm going to throw it to Mike. Um, what can be done to persuade unions to spend less time on politics and more time on workers? He says, I understand union membership actually goes up in some right to work states. That may be because they have to market themselves differently in the absence of mandatory membership. Kevin, that was, I think, I feel like that was a softball, Kevin, but it was really, really good. Mike, go ahead and smack it out of the park. Yeah. Well, there's a couple ways to tackle it, but I, I would say that the, um, you know, I think people people tend to learn best when there's a, a personal consequence uh, to their actions. And I think unions have in recent years been 
suffering the ultimate personal consequence, which is people walking away from desiring their product or service. And so they've increasingly had to turn to, uh, as Vinny pointed out, either more compulsory ways to try and get uh, union members, or they've, they've become increasingly political um, because they want politicians in place who will pass laws to tilt the playing field in their favor. Uh, I think it's part of the reason when Vinny talks about some of these sort of pro-labor conservative ideas we've seen recently, um, while we should be open to those kind of conversations, we also need to be very careful about um, knowing who our partners are in that and making sure that they're acting in good faith. Um, I think it's the kind of the, the other part of, I think, what Vinny was just saying that's really important is that the reason people have moved away, I was actually, I was talking to a German labor expert recently about this, and he had this great quote. He said, uh, reality moves too fast for unions. And he was talking about how <laughs> what's happening in Germany, even again, in sort of the, the ideal, in the left's mind, kind of the ideal European collective bargaining model, younger workers are increasingly moving away from being part of, uh, wanting to be part of any kind of collective bargaining or sectoral agreement because it's just not adapted to the new, the current economy. Uh, he used one example. He said, you think about our current work from home environment. He said, there's not a single collective bargaining contract in the entire country that contemplates uh, a work from home environment and how we would handle that. Workers don't wanna be uh, you know, bound by being on the job so many years to get ahead, knowing that they earn the same as their counterpart. Uh, and so I think, you know, to kind of go back to the original question, uh, I think unions can can uh, best represent, and I think they probably have the best opportunity for growth in the future, if they can position themselves as someone that's responsive to people's needs. I mean, you think about, we talked about the gig economy. Why did the gig economy grow so quickly? Because people realized it's great to be able to use your phone to get a ride on demand, or to be able to use your phone to get groceries delivered to your front door. These are great conveniences. If people viewed the services that unions are offering as that kind of convenience, we wouldn't need a compulsory system to make sure people are part of it. People would voluntarily want to be part of an organization like that. Just um, another a question I want to follow up. Maybe, Mike, you can hit it briefly first, and then we can uh, toss it on to the rest of the panelists. Um, this is from Patrice. She says, because, and, and Mike, I'm throwing it to you because you mentioned the PRO Act. The ABC test in the PRO Act, which we're going to have to define here, is just one aspect of the harmful policies in the bill. Can you discuss some of the other scary provisions, and how should we push back these efforts that a Biden administration may try to enact if Democrats can't advance the PRO Act through the Senate? Great question. Yeah. Uh, it is, and I want to. I know, I know um, uh, both Vinny and Rachel are going to have good things to say on it. I think the one thing. Uh, um, let me just start here. Uh, the ABC test is is really uh, is is what it would look like to take the the AB5 approach in California and take that nationwide, where it becomes very difficult for employers to use independent contractors. The idea being that if if employers have to hire people as employees, it then becomes easier to organize them under current labor laws. Um, one of the other things in the PRO Act that I think is, is particularly heinous, it, it looks a little different than the way it looked last time around under the Employee Free Choice Act, um, but the, the idea is there, the spirit is there, and that is um, a card check. Uh, and, and again, this idea has takes a slightly different form under the PRO Act, but the basic idea behind card check is getting rid of the secret ballot. And uh, the reason that unions the last time around had difficult time even selling this with some Democrats 
is that the secret ballot is kind of a fundamental. I mean, there's there's a reason why the UAW's new deal with the district attorney calls for a referendum on changing the constitution by secret ballot. It's because they don't want union people looking over someone's shoulder saying, you know, you sure you sure you want to vote that way? Are you sure that's how you want to do that? So I think that's one of the deeply concerning things to me about the PRO Act is it brings back kind of this hybrid form of the Employee Free Choice Act that I think ultimately takes away um, workers' right to have a, a secret and private vote. And I'll, I'll toss it to Vinny and Rachel for, for other problems that, that they've seen as well. Yeah, I mean, the, the PRO Act is, you know, simply the smorgasbord of bad ideas. I think car, car check is not the least of it. And yeah, they didn't come straight out and do car check. They basically said that um, an employer is guilty until proven innocent, that if unions get enough cards signed, that, you know, it, all, all a union has to do is say an employer interfered with the election. And unless the employer can prove that didn't happen, then they recognize those cards. So, yeah, it, Mike, you're absolutely right. It's stealth card check. Um, just, you know, very similar to the Employee Free Choice Act. Uh, you know, probably one of the most troubling provisions in the PRO Act is it kills right to work across the country, meaning that unions for private sector employees could actually get workers fired for not paying them. Uh, 27 states have said no, workers should have the choice to pay a union or not. PRO Act would do away with it. Um, it, it has the AB, you know, the ABC test that we saw in AB5 uh, in California, but of course, without the exemption. So, I mean, the product is actually, once again, more extreme than California, if you can believe it. Uh, it attacks the franchise industry. It has the joint employer standard, meaning that, you know, small businesses on the corner, um, those employees will not be the employees of that small mom and pop shop. It's going to be employees of distant corporations. I mean, frankly, you know, I know we only have a couple minutes left, but, you know, we could be here just listing the bad ideas in the PRO Act without even getting into details and eat up the next hour. But, yeah. um, yeah, you know, th there's about, a lot of bad things that I, because Rachel, you know, over to you for probably some even more that you've seen. Yeah, and I want to throw it to Rachel, and also Rachel, let's start. Let's start coming to a a, a conclusion here. You know, we want to be somewhat uh, happy um, after we leave this thing. So, so why why don't you kind of uh, hit both while we uh, wrap up here? Yeah, real just quick here um, on the Pro Act. You know, one of the scary things to me is just the violation of workers' privacies and the fact that this would force employers to give unions my email, my personal home address, my cell phone number, when we know that unions have used those addresses to go onto people's properties to harass and to intimidate them and to try to get them to sign these cards. Um, there's also neutral, um, su subjecting neutral parties to strikes. So say the company that you work for is going to have a conference at a hotel and that hotel is the subject of union negotiation contracts and they're trying to get those workers to strike, they can come after you as the employee as you're walking into your office and try and harass and intimidate you so that you can cancel your, cancel your conference at that hotel because they have an issue with it. Um, and you know, real quick on the ABC, I just wanted to point out the B and the C there because I have some good examples. Um, the B is like the usual course of business. That's how I remember it. My sister has a small veterinary practice. And so when they have doctors who go out on um, maternity leave, they will contract in with relief doctors. They can't do that if they were subject to the AB5 test because they're hiring somebody who's in the usual course of their business. So what would they do? 
they would eliminate their maternity leave policy. That's not going to be helpful. And then for the C, it's, you know, you're customarily engaged. I have a friend who works for one magazine. She wouldn't be able to do that anymore because she doesn't market herself. She doesn't have multiple um, clients. So it just wipes out these things. But on a positive note there, as you said, Tim, you know, they're really are pathways forward that if the unions would kind of, I see it as this last straw effort to just use their members' dues to try to get pol political buy-in um, to pass laws that would force people into the unions. Instead, look at what the workers want. Adapt to this changing nature of work and the idea that some people want more flexibility. Um, they want to be paid based on what they produce. They want more upward mobility options and provide those services. You know, with smartphones these days, you could have a union-based organization that allows you to pick from, you know, negotiated lower rate health insurance benefits, disability insurance benefits, retirement packages, all these things that could be available that workers may want and they could provide. So there are pathways forward. Saltzman, sum it up for me here. Give me a minute. All right. Well, let me actually give you a, a slightly more, uh, maybe a cautionary note. We'll say that, not dire. Um, if there's one thing that um, that I was not excited about after what happened with Prop 22 in California, it's that afterwards, instead of taking a victory lap, uh, there were some companies that decided to say, now that we've won Prop 22, uh, what we'd like to do is sit down with the unions and have a conversation about what it looks like to come up with new forms of representation. Uh, as I said earlier, I view um, the ideas contained in Prop 22 and that and other proposals. I think should in some ways be viewed as a way to bring benefits to, you know, some have called it a third way, some have called it independent contracting plus. There are ways you can bring benefits to uh, workers in the 21st century um, without forcing all of them to be governed by some sort of sectoral contract negotiated um, by kind of politically connected unions. And so what I would hope is that the companies that spent so much money on Prop 22 um, would not snatch uh, defeat from the jaws of victory uh, and go decide to sit down across the table from Mary Kay Henry and the SEIU. Vinny, sum us up, man. Just ripping off, uh, to use your ter term, Tim, uh, what Mike was just saying. Uh, absolutely. Um, smaller is better. Individualized is better. Customized, voluntary. You know, that's kind of the heart of what we're talking about here today. If unions want to represent individual workers on a voluntary basis, as opposed to this sectoral one size fits all, where they're actually trying to expand the old failed model, that's, you know, that's the key here. And hey, I mean, if they want to provide benefits, that's great, but it's voluntary benefits, not mandated by the state, not mandated by a collective bargaining agreement, but things that employees actually want to use and pay for and provide a service. And even on a Republican end, that's actually something that, you know, Tim Sen Senator Scott has pushed with the Helping Gig Economy Workers Act, saying that, you know, hey, it won't be a ding against employers if they want to provide these voluntary benefits, voluntary being the key word there, for their independent contractors. Tim, this was great. Thanks, uh, great job moderating, and thanks to Heritage for uh, co-hosting here. And, and, and thanks to the Institute for the, for the American Worker, Vinny, co-hosting for being a, a great uh, friend to us and helping us out so much with this. And, and thank you, all you who are attended for being here today. Um, this panel has been just a joy to put together. Um, and we know that people join us from all over the place. If you're on the Hill, or if you're at a think tank, or if you just have questions, please contact me. Just use the information listed on the screen. 
we'd love to continue the conversation with you. And, and one more thing, immediately following this event, you're going to receive a survey that we hope you'll complete so that we can bring ideas that you care about to the public square. Uh, to see the events we have coming up, check out heritage.org events. And from me and from Heritage Foundation, the Institute for the American Worker, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and we'll see you on down the road.